0: N-rays. It's not a racial slur, it's a
1: science slur. I'm Kevin Leeson. Apparently a lot of people got blinded by science. I'm Joe Fulgham.
2: Maybe if we had N-rays, you could see that my hair is pink. I'm Professor Rosie Redfield.
3: There's no snooze button on the wasabi alarm clock. I'm Torrin Atkinson. All this and more on today's episode of... Caustic, Caustic
4: Soda! Plastic Soda Podcast, Yay! It's time to set the mics up, it's time for
3: Tales of Woe, it's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda
4: Show. It's time to do our research, unless your name is Joe, it's time to load the wiki on the Caustic Soda Show. To introduce our guest star That's what I'm here to do So it makes me very hungry To introduce to you Dr. Rosie Redfield Yay! But now let's get things started Why don't you get things started? It's time to
3: get things started On the informational,
4: aberrational Strangulational, nauseational Strapped in for the classic Soda Show
1: scientific blunders whoops yeah (laughs) i think that's what happens Uh, the word science comes from latin scientia meaning knowledge which is related to cindir to cut or divide from pre-indo-european root ske and Mm. blunder comes from a scandinavian source akin to old norse blundra which means to shut one's eyes which is from the pre-indo-european root blend which is yeah related to blind so huh. blender and blind blender are and related blind. Uh, it was first used to mean make a stupid mistake in 1711 that's the first recorded use of it meaning that okay all right well that's interesting i couldn't really find a fear of science but fear of knowledge is epistemophobia
3: sure
0: okay and does anybody sense. know what right. the
1: fear of failure is um, No. failophobia <laughs> sorry
0: you, you you just failed i just failed yeah i, I was afraid of that, that was it's
1: uh, a tickophobia a-t-y-c-h-i oh phobia. crazy huh.
0: do we know what i means i don't know what that what that uh, quick look, look it up means. in
3: etimonline.com
0: uh, a tickophobia that is a fear of the live action tick tv series Oh, who has a fear of that, though? That's crazy. <laughs> crazy people, yeah. Uh, some of us prefer the animated series to the live-action series. Well, that's
1: just I good think they make sense. these things right. up. Oh, Who's that? They're not real words. Who's that disembodied voice that of authority? That is our guest, Dr. Rosie Redfield. Welcome to the show, Rosie. Oh,
2: thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: So, uh, Rosie,
0: what exactly are your bona fides?
2: This year, nature... The prestigious scientific journal declared I was one of the 10 scientists who mattered most. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just that's just nature's opinion.
0: Uh-huh. So, my. my There's own, no scientific evidence to uh, <laughs> quantify that?
2: Actually, they, they really liked the fact that I do my science out in the open. All right. I, I write up all my experiments on my blog. And so, anybody mm. who wants can see that yesterday I figured out. Where a particular piece of DNA is bent, yay! Um, so my my uh, credentials. So I have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from Monash University in Australia, uh-huh. a master's degree in biochemistry from McMaster University in Canada. Ooh,
0: uh, the master's from McMaster, a master's from it's McMaster, like double, double mastery. Yeah, it's like a Metallica song.
2: <laughs> I have a. PhD in biological sciences from Stanford. I did postdoctoral work first at Harvard with Dr. Richard Lewinton, famous geneticist, and then at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine with Hamilton Smith, the Nobel laureate biochemist.
0: And
1: she's a name dropper.
0: So you've been around,
1: scientifically speaking. Well, let me tell you, I am going to be dropping her name outside of this podcast. Yeah, we had Dr. Rosie Redfield on the show. Uh Uh-huh. I I, got to say, from a uh, purely alliterative
0: point, I approve. Stamp of Kevin approval.
1: k What have you done recently that has got you on here for our Scientific Blunders show?
2: I pointed out that NASA had made a super colossal public blunder. Uh Right.
1: Nice. So in December of 2010, NASA announced the discovery of the first known microorganism on Earth able to thrive and reproduce using the toxic chemical arsenic. Uh, The microorganism which lives in California's Mono Lake substitutes, or they claimed, substitutes arsenic for phosphorus in the backbone of its DNA and other cellular components. Of course it was California. Yeah. Right. And I just want to point out how cocky this press release was here's what uh, ed whaler uh, nasa's associate administrator said the definition of life has just expanded as we pursue our efforts to seek signs of life in the solar system we have to think more broadly more diversely and consider life as we do not know it okay all so right what's wrong with that statement rosie what did they get wrong how did they screw well,
2: up? well nasa screwed up and the prestigious journal Science screwed up, and a group of NASA scientists screwed up because they all believed something because it was really, really cool without <laughs> being sufficiently skeptical of the evidence.
0: uh-huh
2: and of okay. course, of course, the first blame has to go to the people who actually did the experiments and wrote them up, right who really, really, really wanted to find what's called evidence of the shadow biosphere.
0: Ooh, uh, that sounds oh, cool. It's
2: shadow biosphere. It's really, really <laughs> cool, and it's a shame that we have absolutely no evidence that it exists.
0: I. It sounds like it's something that I want them to find, Oh, though, it, everybody, it biosphere. would be so
2: cool. NASA wants to find life on other planets in other parts of the universe this would be to kill god really
3: cool (laughs) um
2: and they'll give spend a lot of money to send out probes but it's a lot of money some scientists have suggested well
0: maybe we should also look on earth because haven't they found life on earth already though i think there might be maybe it's a myth it's a hoax we brought up life on earth in our hoax episode
2: all the life on Earth is related. All the life we know of on Earth all arose from one origin of life event. Right. So that everything we know about how life could work is really based on a sample size of one.
4: Right. Because okay. we're
2: right. all descended from one common ancestor. Right. But what if, way back when our life was just getting started, what if other lives were getting started too? Mm -hmm. What if some of them still survive and are living unrecognized among us?
3: In the shadow biosphere. As the Mm. shadow
2: biosphere. (laughs) Is that not cool? That
0: is pretty cool. That is very cool.
2: And and much cheaper than sending probes out into space.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, New sci-fi TV movie, Shadow Biosphere TM. With Polly Shore? I don't know. I don't even know what the plot is yet because we haven't actually heard exactly what is involved in the uh, shadow biosphere. But if, if, uh, if Stephen Baldwin is not in it, it's not going to happen. All right.
2: This was a group of researchers led by a young, ambitious scientist who really, really wanted to find evidence for the shadow biosphere. Uh-huh. And her hypothesis was that maybe there was a form of life that could use arsenic instead of phosphorus. And people who've read a lot of science fiction will probably be familiar with the idea that life could use silicon instead of carbon.
1: Right. Right. I've seen in Star Trek at least once. Yeah. yeah.
2: This is the same idea, but a different atom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The same, you know, they're very similar molecules, same next door in the periodic table, all of that Mm -hmm. chemistry stuff. That was what they thought they'd found. They found bacteria that, or they found things that would grow in culture medium where they hadn't put any phosphorus in. They'd only put in arsenic instead. Mm -hmm. They put in all the other things that normal life needs, but no phosphorus. And so they did all this high-tech stuff, got all these high-tech NASA researchers to do analyses on these things that were growing and wrote this scientific paper, submitted it to the Journal Science, very prestigious journal, very hard to get a paper in science, Mm Science sent it out for peer review by other scientists who said, "Oh yeah, this is hot stuff." NASA went to town.
0: Hot stuff, not necessarily correct stuff. (laughs) No, 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 no.
2: Well, no, the science, sciences peer reviewers said, "Looks good." This looks solid.
0: Okay, all right. That's what I'm told. As solid as arsenic. And
2: they thought, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but this is really solid. Okay, so. The paper was accepted. NASA called this big press release.
0: Mm-hmm. So where did they go wrong?
2: Scientifically, they went wrong in not being sufficiently skeptical of the results. They didn't say, okay, how many ways could be, we be wrong? They said, oh, could we be right?
1: right. Uh-huh. Let's tell everybody. We <laughs> might be right. We
2: might be right. I mean, it did go through peer review, but yeah. it was very, very wrong. Right. That's that's the bottom line. So you're is. saying that
3: the peer review wasn't rigorous enough?
2: Well, nobody knows because peer review is usually secret. Oh. At least it's it's anonymous. The, when you send in your beloved manis- manuscript describing your wonderful yeah. research and the journal sent it out to several other people who are experts in the field and they evaluate it. And then the journal makes a decision and sends you the copies of what these reviewers said. But it's all anonymous. You never so, know. Is oh, that's that, interesting. Is that
0: because the scientific community is that clicky that you're like, oh, you might not get invited to the next party if you like ripped his paper or blah blah blah. Like- you might
2: not get your grant. <laughs> uh, <I laughs> no. It's oh. much it's not the parties, it's the money.
0: It's right. the but with the money, you could party. It's all connected. Yes, yeah. it's all connected. All back to the party.
2: No, no, we're geeks. We don't want to party. We want to do experiments.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> we want to spend money on experiments, party not means, beer. Party means different things to different people. You can party with an experiment. You can party
2: in the lab. You yeah. can dance around the lab. A lab
1: party. Drink yeah. out of beakers. Nice. Yeah. So you're working at UBC. Uh, what do you do at UBC?
2: I'm a professor of zoology. Okay. I teach genetics i do research in well the cocktail party version of my research question is do bacteria have sex
3: how's that going so far
2: well i'm the voice crying in the wilderness saying you guys it's not really sex
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh if i had a dollar for every time i've said that (laughs) so you're like the bill clinton of science then it's not really sex it didn't count
2: oh it didn't count uh what's the meaning of
4: is
2: yeah it's what's the meaning of of the word sex yeah yeah it it doesn't count but it doesn't count for deep evolutionary reasons not because of the public interpretation but yeah it's all tied together it could be the bacterial sex yeah so
1: you're working at ubc and you see this press release by nasa and you think
2: i don't trust nasa's microbiology because about fifteen years ago, NASA claiming to found evidence for life in a meteorite from Mars, right, yep. and what they had was little tiny, teeny, teeny, teeny bits of crud that were kind of shaped like bacteria, but about ten times smaller.
3: right I remember seeing this which they
2: claimed were nanobacteria, which didn't actually exist, right like kind of like the shadow biosphere. Oh. And they got all of this publicity.
0: But You know what they're good at? They're much better at naming things than other scientists. Because <laughs> really... shadow biosphere and nanobacteria all sounds really convincing.
2: I don't think NAS- NASA didn't name those, but they're really good at jumping on scientific bandwagons that sound <laughs> really convincing. Um, so I was suspicious already just because it was NASA, and I knew they didn't really know any microbiology. <laughs> But so then but they didn't do the experiments, they just funded the experiments. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. okay. These researchers were funded by NASA, but they were working at various independent research laboratories. They just had NASA grants.
1: Right.
2: Mm. And then I read the paper and it was crap. <laughs> it was really truly crap science. Wow. It wasn't even extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It was like if a grad student had brought this quality of analysis to their committee meeting, I would have said, eh, "Go back to the bench.
3: You Clean arsenic, things for up.
2: Do some more controls." Mm-hmm. So I wrote a blog post because I have a science blog where I write about stuff. Ooh, do bacteria yeah. have sex? I wrote a blog, long blog post, where as if I'd been a reviewer of the manuscript, mm-hmm. a long post where I detailed all the obvious concerns with the paper. It went viral because although lots of other scientists were going, I don't know, this looks kind of crappy. None of them were writing it all down where everybody could read it. Mm -hmm. Although one other scientist did, a chemist named um, Alex Bradley, did write down his concerns as well. And it was nice. Our concerns intersected really well without really overlapping. And between us, we totally demolished the whole thing. Then there was this massive outcry of scientists saying, they're right. This is crap.
3: Mm -hmm. We don't believe a word of it. Oh, the tide has turned. Uh-huh. The yep.
2: tide has turned, and the really funny thing was the same NASA guys who were trumpeting with Twitter and press releases and um, news conferences and everything—the brilliance of the scientists. Suddenly, when things went sour, suddenly social media was not the place to discuss oh, science anymore. Right. Right. Now they said, "Uh-uh, this doesn't shouldn't be discussed on blogs. This should only be considered in the peer-reviewed scientific literature."
1: Except peer review got it wrong this time. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, and we know peer review did get it wrong because I then went on and actually did the ex- repeated the basic experiments, got the strain mm-hmm. of bacteria from the lab in California and grew the bacteria, um, purified the DNA carefully, um, and... Got my own collaborators at Princeton Mm -hmm. um, through social media. I've never met these guys (laughs) face-to-face. I've never even talked to them on the phone. But we set up this collaboration by email, sent the DNA over to them. They did the high-tech analysis that said, there's no arsenic in this DNA. Mm -hmm. And then we wrote our own paper for science, which we submitted and which has been peer-reviewed. And we've revised it, and it's gone back to science and back to the peer reviewers and it's been a month
0: <laughs> well, since
2: the last version, and we're still waiting for the final answer. Well,
0: have okay. you weaved Shadow Biosphere into your writing at all? Because that would probably fast-track it. If you were the peer reviewer. Yeah, if something equally cool.
2: The journal Science is really feeling burned, like they publicly screwed up. The journal Nature is gloating and rubbing salt into the wounds oh, whenever the politics, it can. the
3: politics. Um, <laughs>
2: But I think for our paper, science is just being super, super careful. Right, right. That they
3: Once
0: check bitten, everything. Twice shy. Even did, th- you, did you just say that nature and science are at odds with one another? <laughs> Can we quote you on that? <laughs>
2: They're competing. All right,
1: okay. We'll say that. So I've got some a few notes uh, of history, the history of where science has gone wrong. Uh, Some of them are very caustic. Some of them I just want to point out that you know scientists can make mistakes, and uh, we've known this for a fairly long time.
3: Science are scientists are people too.
1: So absolutely, and that's actually the problem. That seems to be where most of the the errors in science come in is because we're people. Right, that that oh, if we were well, robots, we'd probably be very good at ignoring all the errors we keep introducing. But if, we
2: wouldn't notice all of the that's peculiars that trigger us to do these exactly. things in the first place. Yeah, if Hollywood yeah. has taught. I me will anything. not be replaced by a robot.
0: If Hollywood has taught me anything, if we're ever going to build a Matrix, we need robots. In uh,
1: 1903, Prosper Rene Blondelot, who is a distinguished physicist and a member of the French Academy of Science, and sounds like the name for a Bond girl. Blondelot, <laughs> Blondlot. <laughs> observed changes in the brightness of an electric spark in a spark gap placed in an X-ray beam. He attributed this to a novel form of radiation, naming this the, this N-rays after the University of Nancy, or Nancy, I don't know how the French oh, pronounce it. Nancy Rays, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, Blondelot and approximately 120 other scientists in 300 published articles claimed to be able to detect N-rays emanating from most substances, including the human body, with the peculiar exceptions that they were not emitted by green wood, which I guess means living wood, Uh like not dried out uh, tinder, uh, and by some treated metals. So this discovery, quote, I'm going to put quotes on there. That's a heavy air (laughs) quote over discovery. Uh, Sparked international interest and physicists' worked to replicate the effects, because this is what science does, right? Somebody says, I found this out, and everybody else goes, we're going to try that too and see if that's true. Uh, Many notable physicists failed to do so, including the American physicist Robert Wood, and he described his efforts to observe N-rays as, quote, wasting a whole morning.
2: One morning? <laughs>
1: I know. Oh, baby. Uh, 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 uh. This is like the science version of Mark Twain's uh, Golf is a Good Walk Ruined.
0: Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So being a popular debunker of nonsense at the time, he traveled to Blondelot's Laboratory in France to investigate further himself. I think he was just uh, upset that...
3: It- n-rays supposedly wouldn't enter greenwood and his last name was wood uh
0: there's something to that as Should well be. i just want to point out that n-rays another really cool name seems to be the thing that's tying all these blunders together that's here. right
1: n-rays yeah so in the darkened room when they said they observed n-rays they like looked at them they did not have n-ray detectors they were okay. just like oh look at that light that must be something i don't know what it is we're going to call it n-rays in the darkened room wood secretly removed an essential prism from the experimental apparatus yet the experimental still said they observed n-rays. He also Uh secretly replaced a large file that was supposed to be giving off n-rays with an inert piece of wood, yet the n-rays were still reported as observed. So he basically blinded them. He, without them knowing, with screwed science. up their experimentation. He did blind them with science. <laughs> without them knowing, he screwed up their experiment to go, well, now it won't work. And if they still see it, then it's totally bogus. It's right. just what they're seeing. Uh, his papers so, on these investigations were published in in Nature, and he basically suggested that the N-rays were purely a subjective phenomenon. So what were they seeing?
2: If you sit in a darkened room and stare at something totally black, you'll start to see stuff. Cells in your eyes are just generating sort of background noise, and uh-huh. our brains are so good at finding patterns. Mm-hmm. And that's why we now know we can't trust our judgments. Right. So
1: it's the not it's not that
2: scientists make a lot of mistakes. It's that scientists are the only ones who actually make an effort to discover when they've made a mistake.
1: Right. If they're and, good scientists. Right.
2: Well, even bad we scientists, at least... Discover a fair bit of the
0: time. <laughs> so was this kind of like just like sort of a mob thing that one guy said, "Hey, I saw these things," and everybody wanted to see them so badly that they all just started seeing them. It's kind of yeah a... that
1: that and the combination of what Rosie was talking about with the, you know your eyes are just kind of firing and you oh that must be it. Okay. Uh, within two years, so by 1905, no one outside of the University of Nancy believed in N-rays, mm-hmm. but Blondlot himself is reported to have still been convinced of their existence by 1926. So he just did not accept so the much so that and
3: bombarded himself with n rays uh,
0: and turned
1: into and the became Nolk. the
3: nulk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would love to talk about Lysenkoism at this juncture.
0: Okay, all right. Okay, Yeah, it's politics. It ends with an ism. That's a good. It time. is
3: very much politics. It's kind of a blending of uh, of bad science and polit- and bad politics. Let me give you some background here. Well, this that is... sounds promising. It yeah. Sounds
0: promising for Caustic Soda the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, it was the really bad
2: for science. It was really bad for feeding the Russians.
3: Yeah, the background was uh, the Soviet Union's first five-year plan from 1928 to
0: 1933.
3: Okay. Stalin pursued the policy of collectivization in agriculture to facilitate the process of rapid industrialization. Mm-hmm. This involved the creation of collective farms in which peasants were, worked cooperatively on the same land with the same equipment. This was intended to improve the efficiency of agriculture and eliminate the affluent class of landowners, which was deemed hostile to the Soviet regime. Okay. While improving the position of poor peasants.
0: All right. Well, that sounds like you know. I mean, it's a uh, it's an ideology.
3: The disruption and repression associated with collectivization was a primary cause of the famine of 1932, which resulted in millions of deaths. Okay, mm. that so, doesn't sound like it's good for the little guy. So against we that, we
2: haven't got any science yet.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so against that backdrop, agronomist. Air quotes. Heavy on the air quotes again. Trofim Lysenko claimed to have developed an agricultural technique termed vernalization, which increased crop yield by exposing wheat seed to high humidity and low temperature. Uh, and Jim Varney. And Jim Varney, yeah, yep. the varney The vernalization technique claimed to enhance yields by increasing the intensity of exposure In some cases, planting soaked seeds directly into the snow cover of frozen fields. In reality, the technique was neither new. It had been known since 1854 and was extensively studied during the previous 20 years. Uh, Nor did it produce the yields he promised. Now, vernalization is a real thing.
1: Hmm. By treating
3: wheat seeds with moisture as well as cold, you can induce seeds to bear a crop when planted in spring. But Lysenko inaccurately asserted that the vernalized state could be inherited that the offspring of a vernalized plant would behave as if they themselves had also been vernalized and would not require
0: vernalization order, in order to flower quickly. So he just like claimed this like hmm. out of nowhere. He just went, this is now, these seeds will in perpetuity create this vernalized effect. It seems to be that way. And uh, hmm. with no supporting evidence or anything like that, Just uh, he, he just figured.
3: Well, he has some, I'll, I'll get to a little bit of his research, quote unquote okay. research. <laughs> Soviet propaganda often. (laughs) Should we just
0: assume everything that you're going (laughs) to say for this whole episode is air quoted? Okay.
3: Soviet propaganda often focused on inspirational stories of peasants who, through their own canny ability and intelligence, came up with solutions to problems. Lysenko's ideas were popular with the Communist Party, and he denounced the burgeoning field of genetics to promote his own agricultural practices. He denounced biologists as fly lovers and people haters.
2: That was this was there was also a sort of a battle going on in science between two sort of factions of genetics and evolution. Mm-hmm. There were the, the quantitative biologists and the Mendelians. Right. And for the Russians, the Mendelians, who were the fly counters, they were the bad guys. This was <laughs> not
3: good socialist science. And David
0: Cronenberg right. was one of them. <laughs> Uh,
3: Lysenko did not apply actual science. He insisted on the change in species among plants through hybridization and grafting, Mm -hmm. as well as a variety of other non-genetic techniques. With this came the implication that acquired characteristics of an organism, for example, the state of being leafless as a result of having been plucked, could be inherited by that organism's descendants. Biologist Julian Huxley had this to say about Lysenko's theory. If this theory is correct, it would follow that all Jewish boys would be born without foreskins.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it, I'm just thinking but, that that doesn't sound like it makes any sense.
1: It's whatsoever. also a ridiculously testable claim. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, like, just get a plant, pull off all its leaves, yeah. wait for it to create seeds, seed, yeah. plant the seeds. Oh, look, leaves. Like, uh, uh, the, that's, I could do right, that.
2: But yeah. but if it's not what you want to be true, you <laughs> right. won't do that yeah, test. Exactly. You'll yeah. just say, oh, makes sense to me.
3: Yeah, and it seems like this is the sort of thing that can only happen in this sort of regime of Propaganda and just right where
0: the well, message... it could only
2: happen on this scale. Yeah,
0: in right. this the message scale of our made region. more sense than the actual.
2: Fact. It's, hap- it's still happening all the time.
3: Sure, right. Instead of performing control experiments, Lysenko based uh, his work upon questionnaires taken of farmers. <laughs> uh, the Soviet propaganda machine overstated his successes and omitted mention of his failures. He became so powerful that to disagree with Lysenko risked the Gulag. One plant geneticist, Nikolai Vavilov who was the director of the Institute of Genetics at the USSR Academy of Sciences, repeatedly criticized Lysenko. As a result, Vavilov was arrested and sentenced to death in July 1940. Wow. Oh.
2: Lysenko basically destroyed Soviet genetics yeah. for decades.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, Vavilov's sentence was commuted to 20 years imprisonment, but he starved to death in prison a year later. So he was Lysenko? In
0: there for... More like Lysenko. Ooh! <laughs>
3: Yeah, his work caused serious long-term harm to Soviet knowledge of biology, and many lives were lost either as a direct or indirect result of this blunder. And today the term Lysenkoism is used to describe the manipulation or distortion of the scientific process as a way to reach a predetermined conclusion... As dictated by an ideological bias, often related to social or political objectives.
1: So are we doing anything like that these days with our right-leaning government (laughs) talking about something that's very uncomfortable for them and quieting opposition? Yes, Yes, I think we are. Yes, we are. Uh, as well as scientific errors, we're going to talk about some of the moral lapses of science. Uh, this happened Aww. quite a bit in World War II. Uh, we're going to save the Nazi human experimentation for a later episode, either a human experimentation episode or possibly uh, hey, evil Nazi dudes in history, Mangla. Uh, uh, we're going to we're going to save it. We're so, keeping our options open. Yeah. yeah. However, the Japanese were also guilty of this. Uh, thanks to Fred Bremer for linking this. Unit 731 was a covert Japanese biological and chemical warfare research and development unit of the Imperial Japanese Army that undertook lethal human experimentation during the Second Sino-Japanese War. What? And the World
0: Japanese war II. with war crimes against humans? Yeah. Prior to World War or during World War II?
1: Yeah, it was uh, codenamed Maruta, uh, using human beings for experiments. The test subjects were gathered from the surrounding population and were sometimes referred to euphemistically as logs.
0: Oh. oh, well, that's a way to dehumanize somebody and like not make it tough on your Right. The,
1: the term originated as a joke on the part of the staff because the official cover story for the facility given uh, to the local authorities was that it was a lumber mill. Wow. Ah. So here's uh, kind of wow. a sampling of the horrible things. That this is really, uh, <laughs> they would have had to think of them as logs to do this. Mm. Uh, vivisection. Prisoners of okay. war were subject to vivisection, which is surgery on a living organism, without anesthesia. They were subjected to various diseases and then uh, vivisected so researchers could see the results. Uh They also experimented with removing various organs or parts of organs like parts of the lungs, liver, or brain with the removal of limbs in order to study blood loss. The limbs that were removed were sometimes reattached to the opposite sides of the body. Oh, Oh, that's nice. Yeah.
0: Uh, You see, that just sounds like they're having a lark at that stage of the game. It's like, dude, what would happen? Okay, let's cut his arms off
1: and side? let's
0: switch them. Yeah, like it's, it. sounds like frat boys. And put it them in front like, of a typewriter. It right. Sounds like frat boys with scalpels.
1: Some prisoners' limbs were frozen and amputated, while others had limbs frozen then thawed to study the effects of the resultant untreated gangrene uh. and rotting. Mm. Another experiment. How can oh, you be wrong? It has it has green in the title. Yeah. Another experiment involved prisoners having their stomachs surgically removed and the esophagus reattached directly to the intestines.
2: Oh, Wait, like a minute. Getting, like, oh. Wait a minute. Di-
1: Pipeline. Weight loss surgery. D- I, Only a little more so. Yeah, like yeah, a, a, not a, just a stomach staple, but a stomach removal.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. People I'm, pay for I'm that I'm sure now. they were whipped thin.
1: All of these experiments were conducted while the patients were alive because it was feared that the Rightly. decomposition process would affect the results.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, why wouldn't it? Can't have that. Yeah.
1: The infected and vivisected prisoners included men, women, children, and infants.
3: Of course. Now, were these... These prisoners of war, or
1: well, it was the, the especially during oh, oh, the the, yeah, the children the, the, the Sino Japanese the war infants
0: who had been fighting in the war against yeah. the
1: Japanese
0: yeah no handy. this
1: would be any uh, mostly Chinese prisoners right. I think and just from the surrounding populace
0: okay. I think there's a long history of the Japanese people not really thinking highly of the Chinese people.
1: Yeah, I could go yeah. I could go for a long time no, on this. Okay. I'm going to skip over. Uh, they also did weapon testing. They were used to test grenades, studying the effects of damage based on distance from the explosion. So you like tie somebody to a, a stick and, and then, then you like throw, leave a grenade like 50 feet away and a right. grenade like 100 feet away. away and I... No,
2: you need different people. Different you people, yeah. One with the 50 and one with yeah. the 100
3: and one with the oh, scientific. Why, yeah, why
1: waste grenades? Controls. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they would test flamethrowers on living human beings. They were tied to stakes and used as targets this to test gross. germ-releasing bombs, chemical weapons, and explosive bombs. With the flamethrower, you're testing the effects of flamethrowers on bodies, what the range is, how long you have to keep it on them. uh do you takes can, them to die? Can you do a quick burst? Do you want them
2: to run around on fire right. or not? Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: It is science.
3: It's evil science. It's, yeah, <laughs>
1: it's totally evil science. Yeah. Uh, with the Russian invasion of Manchukuo and Mengyang in August of 1945, the unit had to abandon their work in haste. Uh, the members and their families fled to Japan. Authorities ordered every member of the group to, quote, take the secret to the grave, threatening to find them if they talked and prohibiting any of them from going into public work back in Japan. Potassium cyanide vials were issued for use in the event that, that they were captured. Wow. So, oh. willing to die for their evil science. Cold fusion. Uh, everybody probably heard about this in the 1980s. Uh, at the University of Utah in 1989, chemists Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman announced that the world's energy problems had been solved. Of course they had. Wait, we still have energy problems. What the hell happened? Just curious. They claimed to have created nuclear fusion on a tabletop by electrolyzing deuterium oxide, which is heavy water, using electrodes made of palladium and platinum. According to the chemists, the deuterium nuclei were squeezed so closely together in the palladium cathode that they fused, releasing energy. As Robert Park, right. professor of physics at the University of Maryland and author of Voodoo Science puts it, basically, if what Fleischman and Pond said was true, they had duplicated the source of the sun's energy in a test tube. But they didn't? Well, the other problem was no other scientists have been able to reproduce their results, but not for lack of trying. Because, of course, they announced it. Yeah, of course. Well, and then everybody went, oh, well, that's easy. Let's go do that experiment. And all around the world,
2: the, everybody the,
1: completely this failed. This
2: is, when you ask biologists to look at experiments like this, they go, physicists are so overconfident. They don't even do controls. <laughs> I mean, they think they know how everything should work so well that they don't need to do, you know, sham experiments, controls that let you make sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And they never did, and as soon as you started doing controls, it was obvious that it didn't work at all.
1: Again, around the world, nobody could reproduce this.
2: Like the arsenic thing, there was the same kind of storm of scientists saying, "Wait, this is crap."
1: Yeah, and at the same time, the media was going, "Hooray! Our, our energy problems have been solved. solved.
2: All our financial problems will be solved. We'll Let's all be party.
1: wealthy." Yeah. To well, hell with everything! No, you know
0: what it was? Everybody saw the flux capacitor in the uh, natural order of things. And yeah. they were like, this is gonna happen, people.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, the only reason we can't do Iron Man's armor, really, is the energy source. Absolutely. If you could have a little nuclear reactor in a backpack, mm-hmm. you could fly around. Yeah. Sure. Easy. Done and done. I have a list from listverse.com, the top 10 scientists killed or injured by their experiments. Listverse? Oh. Listverse.com. I guess it's just a website that does a bunch of lists for you. So this is completely subjective. Yeah. Uh, if you disagree, fine. Make your own list. Make your own Send
3: list. Send it in to Podcast. There you go. go.
1: Yeah, get on, the, uh, get on the little chat there and tell us what you think. So number but I do like top 10. Uh, number 10, scientist Carl Scheele would regularly taste his experiments. He would just do... <laughs> I've tasted my experiment. Really? Have what? you tasted hydrogen sulfide?
2: No, I've tasted um, agarose gels that use for isolating DNA.
1: What does that taste like?
2: Well, if you forget to put the buffer in, it tastes like you forgot to add the salt.
1: Oh. Okay. Well,
0: okay. This was an experiment
2: bad. where I was hypothesizing that the reason my experiment wasn't working was because I'd forgot to put the buffer in. Oh. And then afterwards I tasted the two and I said, oh, I did forget to
3: put the buffer in. <laughs> oh, I go. forgot <laughs> to add the salt. But which, so yeah, so it was like a Coke and Pepsi taste test almost. <laughs> yeah, there you you know. go.
1: yeah.
3: This guy's field of science he, was radiology, so that's dangerous.
1: He survived tasting hydrogen sulfide, but later died with symptoms that are curiously similar to mercury poisoning. Okay. Well, so
2: um a, implying that he tasted mercury. Mercury,
1: yeah. I mean They're pretty the sure. dose
2: makes the poison, so it's like how much did he taste? This is this as is a rational t- tasting scientist. It
1: could have just <laughs> been an accumulation of a bunch of things that he yeah. tasted.
0: This, this feels like a Darwin Award nominee here a little. And that uh, you know doesn't sound like a particularly smart scientist oh, how it's would he know? better
3: to
1: remove himself from the equation maybe we he just dates.
3: got he just got his thermometer and his uh swizzle stick mixed up, perhaps uh, his
1: entire life was testing the hypothesis scientists shouldn't taste their experiments ah. <laughs> and uh he proved it to probably be true <laughs> mission accomplished we're going to have to get some replication on that well, he wasn't around to write the paper either, unfortunate. <laughs> it's really too bad. <laughs> Number 9, Jean-François de Rosier, he was a teacher of physics and chemistry. In 1783, he witnessed the world's first balloon flight, which created in him a passion for the sport or okay. sure. for flight. Uh, after assisting in the untethered flight of a sheep, a chicken and a duck, I don't know if that's all in the same flight or just three different Chicken's flights. Uh,
3: duck. They were inside of each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a sheep chick duckin. He took Ducks his Can fly? Unless you stuff it inside a chicken. Uh <laughs> okay. He, t- <laughs> he
2: took the first manned but not duck to free flight. Right.
1: He took the first manned free flight in a balloon. He traveled to an altitude of 3,000 feet using a hot air balloon. On another crossing of the English Channel from France to England, he reached a 1,500 foot ceiling in a combined hot air and gas balloon. Unfortunately, the balloon deflated, causing him to fall to his death. Oh. This was history's first fatality from an air crash.
0: Oh, all right. Oh, so mm-hmm. little, happy birthday a yeah. little call back
1: to our air disasters episode right number eight sir david brewster inventor of the kaleidoscope mm-hmm. nearly blinded himself in a chemical chemical experiment
0: nearlys don't count
1: <laughs> yeah i know is,
0: is that how he invented the kaleidoscope he was like looking through something it poured on his eye and he saw all these colors oh and the, the colors the colors, colors. <laughs> like, i need to invent something to replicate this almost blinding
1: <laughs> this near blindness would be a fun kid's toy <laughs> Elizabeth Asheim is number seven. She studied x-rays with her doctor husband. They studied them so much that they bought an x-ray machine to bring into their house. To, to cook do their all microwave sorts of experiments. Meals. And she ended up contracting a widespread and what they term as a violent cancer that killed her. Ooh. Number six, uh, Alexander Bogdanov. In 1924, he experimented with blood transfusions on himself, most likely in a search for eternal youth. Yeah, uh, I think we may have talked about that talk on the blood episode, the blood. yeah. Number five is Robert Bunsen. Uh, of oh, burner, of, the fame? Burner, of fame. burner fame? Of burner fame. I couldn't find out if he invented what we call the Bunsen burner, but he certainly uh, perfected it. Or are you going to tell us that he died from immolation?
0: No. Oh, okay. Because then people were like, uh, you know, heating stuff up on his like burning well, fleeing body brain.
1: well he, he certainly was heating something up he nearly died twice of arsenic poisoning okay and then shortly after that he lost the sight in his right eye after an explosion of cac is it cacodyl yeah or cacodyl, cacodyl
2: is an arsenate thing
1: and these being excellent reasons to change fields he moved to inorganic chemistry and went on to develop the field of spectroscopy
0: Hmm. all right so obviously you only need one eye to perfect so that. yeah nearly died lost <laughs> an eye to science and said
1: uh, i'm gonna move to inorganic chemistry <laughs> it's a monocular science i uh, got it no. Num- number four sir humphrey davy uh, as a young apprentice he was fired from his job at an apothecary because he caused too many explosions <laughs> and
3: then he was literally fired from his job
1: uh <laughs> As a chemist, he had a habit of inhaling the various gases he was dealing with. Fortunately, this bad habit led to his discovery of the anesthetic properties of nitrous oxide. Uh, he's he's a huffer. He un- was the world's first huffer. He was. Unfortunately, frequent poisonings left him an invalid for the remaining two decades of his life. No.
2: What? Yeah, being a chemist just a bad thing.
1: During this time, he also permanently damaged his eyes in a nitrogen trichloride explosion. So, I would think that wearing uh, eye... Protection is a pretty important thing as a chemist. Well, here's I. I think
0: what's important to point out is these guys. It's not just one explosion. It's getting fired it's a for series. a series of explosions yeah. until they finally catch up with you. Well, he's a myth buster. He's a you know yeah.
1: boom cool. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's it's safe and, until and it's these not. are the
2: guys who who worked in you know suit and tie, white shirt, no lab coat, uh, prided themselves on yeah. Not ha- using any protective equipment. It just
3: wasn't done.
1: Because they're manly
3: men scientists. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Number three is Michael Faraday. Thanks to the injury to Sir Humphrey Davy's eyes, Faraday became an apprentice to him.
4: Oh.
3: He
1: went on to improve on Davy's methods of electrolysis and to make important discoveries in the field of electromagnetics. Unfortunately for him, Faraday also suffered damage to his eyes in a nitrogen chloride explosion, <laughs> and he re- spent the remainder of his life suffering chronic oh, chemical what are poisoning. What guys
3: doing
0: in there? I, yeah. So hold on. Uh, This guy is debilitated because of his terrible experimentation procedure. I'd like to learn how to (laughs) experiment from him. Uh, You probably could have picked a better person to apprentice.
1: Let me see if I can repeat that nitrogen chloride explosion that blinded you. (laughs) Oh, success. Confirmed. Uh, Number two, Marie Curie. Again, we mentioned her in our radiation episode. Uh, As everybody knows, she and her husband discovered radium and spent the remainder of her life performing radiation research and studying radiation therapy. Uh, Unfortunately, her constant exposure to radiation led her to contracting leukemia, and she died in 1935.
0: But if I remember correctly, she actually lived longer than... We were all surprised to learn. She was like 62 when she died or something like that. So with all that she was doing, she was a tough old bird, I think, because she made it longer than anybody would have given her credit for, knowing now what we know and looking back on what she was doing.
1: Right. And I don't know if we've mentioned this, but she is the first and only person to receive two Nobel Prizes in science in two different fields. She has one in both chemistry and physics. So take that, men. You go, girl. Yeah. And number one... You go, radioactive girl.
0: <laughs> you go, glowing green girl.
1: I don't know if this is like the number one in a caustic soda sense, but its I find it kind of sad. Uh, Galileo Galilei, the father of modern observational astronomy, right. uh-huh. was so fascinated with the sun that he would spend many hours staring at it. Oh... <laughs> Which led to- ex- It's so beautiful! <laughs> it's making my eyes water. It led to extreme damage to his retinas, and it was most likely the cause of his near-blindness in the last four years of, of his life. So you you are the father of modern observational astronomy. You perfect, or well, you nearly perfect the telescope. You create telescopes good enough that you can see more things than anybody previously has seen before. All um, he wanted to look at was the sun, though. And <laughs> then you're blind. <laughs> and can't continue with what you want do. This is, what this is like that episode
0: of Twilight Zone where Burgess Meredith <laughs> breaks his glasses and he can't read all the, all books, the books in the world yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Galileo. All he wants to do is look at the stars and he's burnt his eyeballs out.
4: Last week I left a note on Laura's desk. It said I love you Anonymous friend Turns out she's smarter Than I thought she was She knows I wrote it Now the whole class does too And I'm all alone During couples skate When she skates by With some guy on her arm But I know that i My solar dome on a platform in space Cause it's gonna be the future soon I won't always be this way When the things that make me weak and strange Get engineered away It's gonna be the future soon I've never seen it quite so clear When my heart is breaking I can close my eyes It's already here of scientists building inventions in my space lab in space i'll end world hunger i'll make dolphins speak work through the daytime spend my nights and weekends perfecting my warrior robot race building them one laser gun at a time i will do my best What it's worth I just hope that I can't keep them From destroying the earth Cause it's gonna be the future soon And I won't always be this way When the things that make me weak and strange Get engineered away It's gonna be the future soon I've never seen it quite so clear When my heart is breaking I can close my eyes That piece by piece replace myself And the steel and circuits will make me whole But I still feel so alone Until Laura calls me home I'll see her standing by the monorail She'll look the same except for bionic eyes lost the real ones in the robot wars I'll say I'm sorry, she'll say it's not your fault Or is it she'll eye me suspiciously Hearing the whirr of the servos inside She'll scream and try to run But there's no way she can hide When a crazy cyborg wants to make you it's gonna be the future soon, and I won't always be this way. When the things that make me weak and strange get engineered away, it's gonna be the future soon. I've never seen it quite so clear. But when my heart is breaking, I can close my eyes. It's already here.
1: In the news. <laughs> September 2011. Oh, man. Fairly recent. This is this
4: news? News, uh, New- news
1: ish. It's news ish. News ish. The OPERA experiment, which stands for Oscillation Project with Emulsion Tracking Apparatus. They picked the R out of that instead of the T for tracking. And the it's not uh, fair. The Apata. Mm-hmm. The three tenors were somehow involved. They opened the they had a, the the opening night gala. they detected
2: them in Italy. Yeah, exactly. that's where the tenors were.
1: So uh, this was an experiment done uh, at CERN or from an older CERN to a newer CERN or something like that, which was testing the speed of neutrinos. Okay, and they got a result where they found that the neutrinos were arriving. Sixty point seven nanoseconds—that's sixty point seven billionths of a second—sooner mm-hmm. than light would have traveled the same distance in a vacuum. Huh. So they thought
0: We're faster than the speed we've of light? discovered
1: something moving faster than the speed Finally of light.
0: Finally, warp drive. Finally,
1: time travel. Call up the papers. Uh-huh. Exactly. Well, you know, you want to make fun of them for for announcing this and it being, let's face it, wrong. Uh, but they did six months of cross-checking. Okay. And they finally announced their discovery, which seems to violate special relativity, which is nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Uh, James Gillies, a spokesperson for CERN, said on September 22nd that the scientists were, quote, inviting the broader physics community to take a look at what they had done and really scrutinize it in great detail. And ideally for someone somewhere else in the world to repeat the measurements. So that actually seems a fairly reasonable thing to say, which is, look, we got this it's probably not right. So it's not this super cocky NASA, we should start yeah. thinking about life and we other We are really forms. going to have to think about Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, but, of course, the media ignores that. No, and just starts going, cool. faster than light neutrinos!
0: Are neutrinos those, like, uh, in South America, those those giant rats? Are those neutrinos?
2: nutrias. Neutri- those are nutrias. Ah. I'm a biologist. Are bi- <laughs> and they are, they're very big, whereas neutrinos are really little.
0: I can't imagine a uh, neutria traveling faster than the speed of light, though. That would be pretty awesome. That would be awesome. That would
1: violate much more than just special relativity.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask how, if you've got, if you're working at CERN,
3: mm-hmm. how... Do other people who aren't working at CERN test your hypotheses? How well, do you submit that for peer review? Yeah, well, is it just the numbers you send out?
2: Well, the, yeah, the thing is there's only one other place in the world where you could do this kind of thing. There's there's a mine in Minnesota I visited once where they're sending neutrinos from Chicago, from Fermilab, th- through the Earth's crust Whoa. to this mine and measuring. I Aim can How fast they go in the same wow, stuff. Wow, that's but, pretty cool. But, yeah, you can't really – and it's kind of – disingenuous. I mean, a lot of time the arsenic people did this. They they publish stuff, and then it turns out to be wrong, and then they say, oh, well, the real value of our uh, wrong result was that it stimulated all this other research. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, right. You uh, were just wrong, and you wasted people's time. Right.
1: It's not like you guys wouldn't be researching something else. In, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it's not like these opera
2: guys actually made a kind of mistake that could be found by other researchers. Is that right? right? They're, like their wires were crossed or something. Uh,
1: I will get to, yeah. Well,
0: yeah, so what actually happened? So
1: Okay, well, first let me, do, I'll give you a kind of a brief detail of what they did with the experiment. All they did was they created muon neutrinos, which is a type of neutrino. Moo- uh, <laughs> yeah. At uh, CERN's older. the
2: neutrias. Yeah, yeah,
1: they're cow-shaped. Ah, uh, they created these at CERN's older SPS accelerator, which is on the Franco-Swiss border, and then they shot them towards the LNGS lab in get Gran Sasso, Get through the Sasso, crust Italy. of the earth. Right. Can we get some more acronyms, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 731 kilometers away. So they thought this okay. is a nice long distance. We'll shoot it there, and we'll see how fast they get there. Okay. In February of 2012, the Opera collaboration announced two possible sources of error that could have significantly influenced the results. So many months later. Sunspots. uh, Sunspots. I I think people were mentioning that. Maybe sunspots did something. I don't... You can (laughs) always blend sunspots. Yeah, yeah. sunspots. That's what did it. Uh, A link from a GPS receiver to the Opera master clock was loose. Okay. Which increased the delay through the fiber. The glitches' effect was to decrease the reported flight time of the neutrinos by seventy-three nanoseconds. Tighten those how bolts. Many, how scientists. many nanoseconds did we have to? Sixty point seven. So that's oh, more we than got enough. got
2: thirteen nanoseconds right. on the other side. Yeah. Wow. Uh,
1: also, a clock on an electronic board ticked faster than its expected ten megahertz frequency, lengthening the reported flight time of neutrinos, thereby somewhat reducing the seeming faster-than-light effect. So both of these together, mostly the loose wire. So this was a loose wire. This right. is mostly what caused. Got this. it, but the problem is, of course, I mean, you can't help. Well, how come these guys don't do what I do when,
0: like, my, uh, you know, my Blu-ray player is acting up and just jiggle it? Yeah, yeah. give it, it a just smack. jiggled it. Right? It's Han Solo well, you slash can't, Fonzie style. But you style. can't
2: jiggle it because the the neutrinos are scarcer. Detecting the neutrinos, as I recall from going down the mine, it doesn't happen very often.
4: Mm-hmm. Right, and okay. so
2: it's not like you've got. Ten trillion, and you go. Oh wait, these ones are going faster. Oh, wiggle the wire. Oh, now they're back to their normal temperature. It's like, oh my god, here's a neutrino. Incredible! Break the paper. They're just
0: happy to have a neutrino. One. We don't yeah. care how yeah. fast it's, it's going. it's hard. It's hard to
2: do the the checks properly All when right. they're so scarce. Right.
0: All right. So there, my my uh, my wiggle my wiggle uh, solution just debunked live.
1: September 29th. The Ig Nobel Awards are awarded every year and These uh, are the awards awarded by Iggy Pop to who? <laughs> to to the worst scientists ever. Well, hmm, interesting. The Ig Nobel Prizes are an American parody of the Nobel Prizes and mm-hmm. are given each year in early October for 10 unusual or trivial achievements in scientific research.
3: Mm-hmm. Ah, I like trivial They're achievements. They're like the scientific uh, razzies.
1: Razzies, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'll put a link up to the full list, but I picked out three that I thought were fairly funny or caustic. Okay. Uh, the chemistry prize went to Makoto Imai uh, and several others of Japan for determining the ideal density of airborne wasabi to awaken sleeping people in case of a fire or other emergency oh. and for applying this knowledge to invent the wasabi alarm. <laughs> Wouldn't it cause like burning in your eyes? And yeah, like, you know,
0: wake you up. And, and,
1: and, yeah, It clears out your sinuses. But Kevin lesser to evils would you rather have wasabi <laughs> shot in your eyes or burned to death asleep in a fire
0: how about just a noisy alarm well, what if, if you're if- deaf <laughs> what yeah. if you're
2: deaf you know you need these wasabi alarms
0: well maybe the deaf deserve to die Whoa! Bold, oh, whoa! Bold. Whoa! Did
3: some
1: deaf person sit on I you just, when you were a kid or something? I just want to point out: I know some people sometimes aren't sure who's talking. That was Kevin.
3: <laughs> the best part is nobody is going to be offended because they can't hear
1: our podcast. Yes. The peace prize. <laughs> Horrible. The Peace Prize went to Artūras Zuokas, the mayor of Vilnius, Lithuania, for demonstrating that the problem of illegally parked luxury cars can be solved by running them over with an armored tank.
2: I saw that oh. on YouTube, but somebody said that it was staged, that it wasn't I'm like sure that. Was. standard. Also, what was
3: the control car?
0: <laughs> yeah. Does it only work with luxury cars?
1: And it's not
2: clear that they collected any data (laughs) about subsequent illegal parking.
3: They did Uh, collect the change out of the... It uh, was a great video, though. smashed up cars. And do
1: you you drive over them with different things, like a children's bicycle and somebody on a horse? No, you know what? The armored tank really seemed to make them stop parking illegally more than the bicycle.
3: I like that it's gone from the little tiny meter maid-style golf cart Straight <laughs> to the tank. tank. There's no middle ground but, in between.
0: How many tanks do they have in Lithuania anyway? Maybe this is got lots. entire- No, no, I'm sure they've got
2: lots. I
3: think.
0: Uh, Just painted them white with former some- Former the the Soviet tanks, Union, right? they go, got the got
2: shitloads the... of tanks. they got to find something no. to do with them. <laughs> the Soviets... <laughs> they got more tanks than meter maids.
3: It's no. a whole make-work <laughs> project. The, the
0: Soviets <laughs> weren't known for leaving their tanks behind for the local populace. Oh, to yes, years. they were. They would run over the local populace and then leave it behind. Maybe they mm-hmm. modified the
1: gun to fire parking tickets. Oh, mm. there you go. <laughs> and, and boots. <laughs> the public safety prize went to John Sendler's of the University of Toronto, Canada. Hey! hey! Good Canadian kid. For conducting a series of safety experiments in which a person drives an automobile on a major highway while a visor repeatedly flaps down over his face, blinding him. <laughs> nice. What was the purpose of this? Uh, apparently that's unsafe. Oh and he oh, guess he proved that? He proved
0: that that was unsafe.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, don't wear this visor that flaps down in your eyes. <laughs> When you're driving on the highway, is I've it, does he, it. Is he mean like the visor that flips? The sun down? visor,
2: and the on is that the what he means?
0: St- yeah.
3: uh, I don't know. like the thing that you put your registration in, or yeah, your yeah,
0: or, or your covers. makeup mirror, visor? whatever. Yeah. Or they put a motorcycle helmet on him, and the visor, which was like blacked out, would just instantly flop down with the blast shield down. Like, I can't even see. How am I supposed I'm, to drive? That's
1: exactly what I'm envisioning. <laughs> yeah. That he's driving with the blast shield constantly flapping down and blinding him, and then flapping up. There it is. There. There yeah, we go. It's a blast shield. It's a blast shield. There it is. Right oh, we are there.
0: definitely putting a picture of this on <laughs> caustic soda podcast December sixth of twenty eleven. I'm sure most people have heard about this. The Mythbusters cannonball incident. Oh, yeah, I did hear about this, but... Just, I didn't. Uh, there was an errant cannonball, like, during one of their shoots?
1: They or? were conducting an experiment. Uh, Mythbusters likes to do science on TV. I'm, yeah. I'm sure everybody knows who they are, but for the one person who hasn't seen it, they take myths and ideas from movies and things like that and then test them to see if they're true.
3: The only difference between... Well, maybe not the only one. But one of the differences between Mythbusters and real science is that Mythbusters doesn't do it over and over and over again a thousand times. Right. Right. But it's still fun to watch. And they yeah. they're not
1: they're not all that blinded, things like that. But it's I think it's a really good intro for the layman to what science is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Things like that. While conducting an experiment on the effectiveness of various projectiles when fired out of a cannon, so they were going to try different things, things oh, just of shoot a watermelon uh, and' of a cannon, they were firing a cannonball at some water barrels. So I guess their first, their control was, we'll see how well a cannonball shoots out of here. The cannonball,
2: Hasn't that experiment like, been done? Well, but they like,
1: needed it with the cannon. They 400 had... years
2: ago? I mean, <laughs> people have been shooting cannonballs at things for a they long
1: time. They didn't get it on video. Yeah. They didn't they, get it on video yeah, with at, super at,
0: slow-mo. at 600 frames per second. Yeah.
1: Like, yeah. And they needed to compare that specific cannon and this specific cannonball to probably, I don't know, watermelons. I don't know what else yeah, they're going to fire.
0: Chickens, whatever. Chickens, sure. Uh-huh.
1: Probably dead chickens, actually.
0: <laughs> Frozen chickens. Uh,
1: the cannonball went over its intended target of water barrels and instead soared 700 yards, that's 640 meters, into a neighboring community, striking a house and leaving a 10-inch, that's 25 centimeters, hole before striking the roof of another house and smashing through the window of a parked minivan before Those, coming to rest.
3: So these weren't Nerf cannonballs. Uh, no. This is a real.
0: This was cannonball. a...
1: 700 meters 700 or yards? yards 640 meters seven and I, football fields i've got an image that somebody's created here showing the path and how far it went from the bomb range there at the alameda bomb range and it went oh i'm guessing over i'm guessing it arced when it did this and probably went over Well, six houses yeah. about i'm just guesstimating six houses before going through one yeah and apparently it went through the front door and out the second floor bedroom of a sleeping family. It sounds like it must have bounced. It must have come yeah. down and like landed in front of the house
0: and then went through the front door and up out the second yeah. floor. And
3: then hilariously, some guy just went over and turned off the alarm clock and went back to sleep.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it then blasted across a busy road. Uh, demolished some roof tiles of another house, uh, which was uh, uh, over two more houses, hit a third one. Yeah, so and it's then bouncing. This cannonball it's, is bouncing. It's, yeah, it's probably like a pinball, but yeah. super high speed. And then it smashed through the window of a just parked minivan and finally stopped there. Just parked. Here's the movie producer, me. Did yeah. they get it on film? They did, but they're not ever going to show it. Oh, they, no. they've, they've decided that it would just be in very bad taste to show something that ended up being that I know that they do, they do if they they killed killed like, somebody. don't they do live shows and sometimes show they stuff do.
3: that doesn't get on TV?
1: So there's Pop, hope? Yeah, maybe. possibly. Maybe they maybe might, there's hope. Okay. You might be able to see it at some kind of Mythbusters convention or things. You know? mm. Yeah. Pop culture. Pop culture. If you want to create a movie, Science gone wrong is a pretty good place to
0: start. Uh, it's a it's a it's a very well-worn trope. Cuz science gone sure. right
1: is uh, interesting no. but not very dramatic.
2: Science is much uh, as the the three regular readers of my blog can tell you,
1: <laughs> science
2: more. is really boring. Most scientists spend most of their time trying to figure out why their bloody experiments won't work. <laughs> Not why they got the wrong answer or their com- their favorite hypothesis is shown to be wrong. It's just, it won't even work. Yeah. <laughs> it's really boring. To the observer, it's boring. But to do it, it's this, the, know, si- like watching somebody sci- do drugs.
4: Okay. That could be an experiment. Science is
2: like watching somebody do drugs. No, no, no. Doing science is like doing crack cocaine. Watching somebody do science is like watching somebody do crack cocaine. Uh, <laughs> that's
3: why you got to throw in terms like shadow biosphere and yeah, rays. you got to
1: do it. it and then start making movies about when it goes horribly wrong, such as uh The Fly. Ooh, oh yeah, that's that a good was one. that
2: was really good.
1: Yeah, yeah. he went on to Cronenberg. play Jim
2: Watson in the movie about DNA.
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. It
2: was great. I kept expecting Jim Watson to grow. <laughs> it spikes on <laughs> hairs on his face and <laughs> and fly wings and yeah
1: s- club sandwich yeah <laughs> for those who haven't seen the fly uh we're going to or should. who have
2: forgotten everything except jeff right. goldsmith
3: spoiler
1: alert he yeah. turns into a fly <laughs> yeah he creates a teleportation device to teleport from one little pod to another and then accidentally gets into the teleporter with a fly uh-huh. Buzzes in, and when he comes out, he's been inf- kind of somehow infected with fly DNA. Yeah, yeah, it's merged, and then slowly becomes more and more gross and fly-like. Yeah. No. Now
3: yeah. I'm trying That's to remember so. because in the original there was the fly with the human head and yeah. the human yes. body with the fly head, and he was going help me, help me, help me. But yeah. in the remake, the Cronenberg remake,
0: is there? Is I it don't... just one creature? They've merged. There's no. In the fly movie, there was there was no second creature. There was just Brundlefly. It's too bad. Except the movie is really good, so it's not too bad. It's
1: good. Jurassic Park, would we call that a blunder? I mean they were certainly massively they successful, but they certainly miscalculated the effects. Conce- there was unforeseen
2: no, consequences, yeah. There, there was no
1: blunder
0: in the science. I mean they actually successfully created a park full of dinosaurs. The blunder <laughs> was, was in, the in marketing. keeping them contained. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The blunder was in the in the fence building.
3: I think the I think the scientific blunder in that one was they made the velociraptors like 5 times as big as they should have been.
1: Comics have a lot of blunders that end up actually being pretty good or pretty bad. The Hulk being a pretty major blunder. Yeah, no, that is definitely a scientific blunder. You could call him a hero, but he's also caused a ton of damage.
3: The blunder in that was the fact that they didn't fence off the test zone. That's true. So that, what's his name? Rick Jones. Yep, Rick Jones. Rick Jones got in with his little Jeep and it was just not bad security. Yeah. Because then Bruce Banner had to run out and save him from the gamma bomb.
1: Also, uh, what was the gamma bomb supposed to do anyway? It was just a bomb, I think, that they were just going to blow up and... See if its explosive power was and whatnot.
3: And then they shelled it because they didn't want a a, a Russia full of hulks.
1: (laughs) Probably.
0: (laughs) Fair. I I think that's fair commentary. That's uh, no need to blow off any more gamma bombs.
1: Fantastic Four were created by Scientific Blunder, oh, not yeah. shielding from cosmic rays. Oh, again, yeah. with the with the radiation from space. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's really easy to make it magic when you call it cosmic rays, even though we really know what cosmic rays are. Oh,
0: Stan Lee. Well <laughs> but your misunderstanding of science has created so many legends. Well the other thing too is that this is all in like the nuclear age, right? Where radio radioactivity and radiation was this you know amorphous kind of godlike thing in everybody's yeah. lives and you know you can hear a lot of people talk about why it got away from like the sil- the golden age was a lot of magic and a lot of mysticism mm-hmm. and then when you get into the the silver age stuff it's always origins are always atomic yeah. or you know radioactive or science based right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's kind of an interesting interesting take on it.
1: Has anybody ever really been a big fan of Fantastic Four in this room? Because no. I never have been. I don't know no. if I've read much that I've enjoyed. Yeah, no, yeah.
0: could not care less about the Fantastic Four. I think could I could not some... care less about any of. them. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Is there any comic that you were a fan of? <laughs> Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> oh, there you <laughs> go. They had science.
1: There's sometimes. no way the duck could talk. Could not have. <laughs> come on, That's Rosie. Bad science. That's bad science. How about
0: when he dies into that giant pile of coinage? Oh. There's no oh. way he dies into that No, and comes somebody
2: up the somebody just wrote an article. <laughs> I think it might even be a paper where they calculated how much money you're going to need to do that. I just saw it the other day. <laughs> how much money you need to do what Uncle Scrooge does. He it's real it.
1: science. He dives into swimming pool, pools full of, like,
0: coins. Yes. Yeah. That's that got to hurt. That's really my problem. I guess he must dive in the, like, there's probably,
1: you know, valleys that are just Maybe he loops bills. them all
0: up first. Oh,
1: yeah. Right. Or maybe yeah. they're just chocolate coins. One of my favorite video game series is definitely the Half-Life series, and it gets triggered off of uh, an interdimensional experiment gone awry. What's great about Half-Life is you are the one doing that experiment. Ah. You show up to the lab at the very beginning of Half-Life 1, and actually it's all very mellow. You get onto this tram that's bringing you through this secret underground base, and you see all sorts of science and weird science going on around you as you hear a voiceover welcoming you to the Black Mesa Research Facility. Finally, you get to where your lab is. You walk past like a security guard who welcomes you in. You have to go get your outfit. Is and then, this like working at UBC it, so far? <laughs> uh, no. No, I really don't think so. You get like a super-powered suit that protects you That's from the That's what I want, a super-powered suit. I know, suit. it would be yeah. so great to protect you from the experiment because you're going to be exposed to this radiation. And really your job as like a, an MIT graduate is to push a button. And then everything goes horribly awry, and you have to fight your way free. Uh, fantastically good series. Uh, Half-Life is well worth playing for anybody who who enjoys any kind of first-person shooter type what game. What is the
3: Half-Life of the Half-Life uh, game?
1: They've taken a heck of a long time to create Half-Life 3, so uh, I don't know. So we've got Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a pretty great example. Uh, and that's, that's in books and movies and TV yeah. shows. Uh, my favorite of that actually is... Spencer Tracy's movie? No. In the 40s? <laughs> no, it's actually Jekyll, which is a BBC miniseries. Oh, yeah? Uh, by Created by Stephen Moffat, who is the current showrunner for Doctor Who. Okay. And it's a just a six-episode series, and it's a modern-day, not even retelling of Doctor Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, you watch the first episode, and there's a guy who's fairly mild-mannered, but has obviously got a pretty strong will... And he has some really weird stuff going on in his life. He hires this woman to be his personal assistant. And every once in a while, he just becomes a completely different person. The great thing about the show, the way that they portray it, is they don't do CG, they don't put makeup on him, they don't do anything. He acts like Mm -hmm. a completely different person and pulls it off so well. Like The difference between him as meek and... His name's not Jekyll. I can't remember his name. Uh, But between the meek scientist type guy and the cocky, outgoing, aggressive party, screw everything he can, smoke, drink, enjoy the world, beat people up because it's fun... Hyde type character is amazing and done completely without any kind of makeup or enhancement.
0: Yeah. You know what? I I read um, the original book, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, ages and ages and ages ago, like back in high school. And, uh, you know, I I always thought it was a really clever way of like dealing with the duality of man. Right.
3: What was the actual science? Like, why did he invent that serum? What was he trying to achieve with his the science of the serum?
0: Think. He's trying to kill the base animal instinct of man. And oh, to make everyone to more civilized. That's yeah. right. And okay. of course, what he did is he created two distinct personalities okay. that embodied both those things. Right. Right. So it definitely science gone bad. <laughs> like yeah. if that doesn't uh, fit under what these science a blunder. blunder.
1: So it's kind of like the law of conservation of evil. You know, you you can't destroy or create evil. It just has to go somewhere.
4: It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling you're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's a bad feeling, an ominous feeling, a feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new and we'll have more gross
3: facts for you and you'll have
4: things you want to hear about we will too
2: caustic soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while he was receiving maggot therapy
4: to comment on episodes make a donation see show notes links and videos visit causticsodapodcast.com rate and review us on iTunes visit us on Facebook email us at info at podcast.com susu su 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 su